Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series in which I talk with a writer, a podcaster, scholar, artist, a musician about their favorite stories. And joining me today to talk about the Stephen King short story, The Mangler, is podcaster and scholar Evan Lampe. Uh, Evan has a PhD in history, and he's uh, published his uh, academic book, Work, Class, and Power in the Borderlands of the Early American Pacific. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, He's also written a fantastic book on Philip K. Dick called Philip K. Dick and the World We Live in. I highly recommend that book as well. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. And Evan, you are, you know, in addition to having written the books that I mentioned, you are a prolific, prolific podcaster with over 500 episodes published. And you release all your podcasts under a single feed, which I have to say, you know, from my perspective, as someone who manages like six feeds, that seems like a smart idea from a production standpoint. Uh, And that feed is American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time. Uh, That is also the name of the the flagship show, or at least the the, original original show, I guess. And, uh, you know, I'll just ask you, Evan, what's the, what's the premise of American writers a hundred pages at a time? I just kind of always kind of wanted to learn more about American writers. I'm a historian, an American historian by training. I mean, I do global stuff, specific, you know, labor history. And one of my fields was China, but I always loved really American history the most. And, um, I started getting those library of America volumes. I subscribed to them. That's a great, uh, series up to like 350 volumes or so really cost effective for most of their volumes too because you might get like four or five novels in one volume so i started collecting those and i just started like reading through them more and more and thinking more and more about kind of presenting some of my ideas about these and then it would give me an excuse to like read writers i normally wouldn't read so that's how it started and then I, the 100 pages of the time was just a you know, it seemed like a good amount of material to talk about, right? Like four hours of audio book, you know, or a few hours of reading a couple times a week. It seemed like a good amount. And it would allow me to like reflect on a novel over several episodes in some cases. Yeah. And, th- and then I just started going into that. I started with Melville and did some Jack London and Frank Norris, a lot of writers I really liked and, you know, had studied before. But then I started adding other writers that, you know, I got these volumes, but I never really had an excuse to read them. So the podcast became a way to just kind of force myself to read more broadly in American literature and to think more about different points of view and different perspectives. So that's how it started. And then I started doing the Philip Dick read-through, Philip K. Dick read-through. You read it much of his stuff, Glenn? I have read almost all of Philip K. Dick, though you you have done like a serious business job with Philip K. Dick here because you even read his posthumously published mainstream novels, which I have never read, but I was excited to hear you talk about. I I did like three or four of them in the main series, but not all of them. And then uh, this was actually Jesse over at SFF Audio. It's like, we need you to do Lovecraft. And I've been thinking about actually writing a book about Lovecraft, uh, specifically on Atlantic history. Because everyone's talking about Lovecraft and race, and and that's part of this, because I think really almost all his stories are connected in some way with Atlantic history, right? With the with all the, the, the connection to the sea in a lot of his stories, uh, and there's a lot of class elements. That's something we can think about when we think about Stephen King, too, as a oh, yeah. someone influenced by Lovecraft, right? 
but coming at it with a very, very different perspective in a lot of ways. And I wrote an essay about it, actually. I published it called The Innsmouth Look. And that was kind of... So, I finally started doing that. So, right now I'm working on a... Alongside my mainline series, working on a, a Lovecraft read-through. And there I'm looking at the letters. Because when you do Lovecraft, it's not just the stories. You really have to look at the letters, too. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I know you have a bit of a lag from what you publish on the on the feed versus what you've already recorded or what you're doing. But I think what I heard earlier this week, a couple of days ago, you're you're in the middle of doing some collaborations, uh, which I think is really awesome. Those are also something like the letters that are so often overlooked. Yeah, I'm actually working on this third volume of the selected letters, and I'll go after done with that. I'll go back to read some more of the stories he published under his name, and then some more revisions, and then do the fourth volume of the selected letters then finish up with the fiction. And then I'm going to do a series on the, the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft letters. And I think that'll be it. That'll be enough. And I guess if I was going to use one word, Evan, to describe all three of the shows that you do, I mean, it would be completionist. Uh, you, you are extremely thorough uh, in covering uh, darn near everything. And so I really do. Yeah, I don't know if it's fully healthy. Like, I, <laughs> I actually bought the, this was years ago, but I bought the, the Brilliant Classics collection of like, the Mozart works, it's 150, 160 CDs or so. And I'm like, how should I start with this? And it's like, I started with this, you know, the first one he wrote. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was, that still exists. And then I went through all of them chronologically. You know, most people don't do it that way, I guess. Well, and I will say as well that your your pace is not slow, right? I mean, the, the listeners to this show who are also listening to our Gene Wolfe podcast, uh, I will just say to you specifically that uh, Evan goes at about 10 times the pace that Brandon and I do over on that show and working through a, you know, a single writer's uh, entire canon in chronological order. Uh, I marveled at how quickly you got through Philip K. Dick. Uh, just an impressive feat on its own in it, you know, setting aside even to sort of the, you know, the, the excellence of the content itself. Uh, so I do highly encourage people to check out Evan's podcast. You can find all of those at American writers, 100 pages at a time. It's just a, just, you know, phenomenal series of shows there. And uh, maybe at the end of this show, Evan, I'll, I'll ask you what's, uh, what's up next, but let's pivot into talking about the story that you've picked out, which is the mangler by Stephen King. Uh, this was first published in 1972. Uh, it is now in the short, story collection, Night Shift. We're going to talk about that collection as a whole a bit as well, which I'm excited about. Well, let's uh, let's just start here with a synopsis of The Mangler, just to orient people who perhaps haven't read the story or haven't read it in a while. And look, Stephen King is notorious. Well, he's notorious for a number of things, but one of the things he's notorious for is taking some everyday component of our world and asking the question, but what if it were possessed and real murdery? And, you know, Christine, the, that's the one about the truck. That's probably the most famous of those. But the Mangler uh, is another one. And it features an industrial washing machine that gets a, a little too hungry for human blood. It's not, not technically a washing machine. It's actually a machine that presses and folds, but it is part of an industrial laundry facility, right? Like the, the kind of place that cleans like hospital uniforms and, uh, I don't know, probably prison uniforms and that 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 sort of thing. And the idea here in the story is that over time, this machine has been given all the herbal components that an early modern witch would use to summon a really powerful type of demon. And this this has happened because many of those uh, plants are actually used in the soaps and other stuff that you might put into an industrial washing machine, or you know they're used in some other uh, way, some other occupation. And so things have splashed on people's clothes that are going through the machine and so on. And at first, the demonic machine attacks the workers at the laundry facility. But then 
at the end of the story, it uproots itself. It goes out on the town to do some killing. And the story ends with the uncertainty that it can never be stopped. And so that's a little synopsis without even you know mentioning a single character uh, in the story. But I want to just kind of start our entrance into this story, Evan, just by asking you why you picked this one. You know, I've just been thinking about Stephen King a lot. And me being a completionist, I sort of want to start at the beginning, right? <laughs> so start with some of his early stories. Um, I don't know. Like, I've been thinking a lot about Night Shift, actually, lately. Because part of what's – well, my whole – my experience with Stephen King, I think it's not an uncommon one is where – for my generation, anyways. I read him back when I was 14, 15, right? That's when he was writing, like, Cujo and Christine and these books came out. And I was reading them. And I kind of followed him for quite a while. And then in the 90s, when Stephen King starts to venture into all these new themes, and he writes books like Insomnia. And actually, I, I remember Insomnia was the last book of his that I read. And then I went to college, and I didn't have the time to read. I had to read history. Um, so I kind of stopped reading this stuff. And I came back probably about eight years ago, and I started reading all his stuff again, and I... You know, got a bunch of audiobooks. And I was, because I, I was living in Taipei at the time and a lot of commuting. So I was listening to these books and thinking there's a lot more here than I thought. Not just the wonderful characterization, which he's known for, right? Those really memorable characters. But, you know, even thematically, there's a lot of interesting things. But, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to do too much about it rather than just enjoy it. But when I started working on Lovecraft, you know, I was really thinking like Stephen King was so influenced by Lovecraft and especially in his early works. And it culminates, of course, in It. It is a very Lovecraftian novel. But he comes at almost everything differently. There's so much, like, rewriting of Lovecraft these days, like the Battle of the Black Tom and the Lovecraft Country stuff. And I think that's a really interesting movement. But um, but I think King's been rewriting Lovecraft for quite a while, right? And this is a, a story that sort of does that because it does have, like, the book, the spell book, right, and the... There's no cultists here raising anything. It's all done accidentally, of course. But, you know, you still have that theme. And you have, like, the weird person who's into those traditions, you know, can kind of help our hero out. You know, these are things that are, like, there's, like, that vernacular knowledge, right? It's something I talk about a lot when I do the Lovecraft stuff. It's like, there's always this, like, hidden knowledge, right? And that's here. There's that character Jackson, right? The friend. Who's right. like, you know, this sounds like maybe you're... Ironers possessed or something. It's like, oh, I got these books and I can research it, right? And he goes through and finds, you know, digs deep into those texts. And there's actually a couple stories in Night Shift that do just that. Um, the other is sometimes they come back. Have you read that one? I have not read this one. I, I, I will say that this is a collection that we've got, Brandon and I have, because we did Graveyard Shift out of this, and we just haven't gone back to it. But like you, I wanted to check out Stephen King before Stephen King was Stephen King, like before he got big. I wanted to see what he was up to, and I've been really enjoying it. And you know, Graveyard Shift is basically a retelling of The Rats in the Walls by Lovecraft, or you know, an homage to, maybe not a retelling. Well, I think uh, the, the strongest homage to Lovecraft, or the most obvious, is Jerusalem's Lot. The very first story in Night Shift, and it's, it's not a very good story. Uh, but that's actually, you know, I think most of these stories are good. Jerusalem's a lot is not a very good story uh, overall. It's really, it's you can really tell I'm trying to jam in all, every Lovecraftian <laughs> into that story, and it comes off as kind of ridiculous often. And it has the, even it ends with, "Oh, I hear the rats in the wall," which is 
core, yeah, like just lifting directly from <laughs> right. Well, this story, the the mangler, even to me, felt like it was a retelling of the third act of the Dunwich Horror. Except that you know the joke is that it's like a washing machine and not Yog Sothoth that you're trying to defeat. Um, now, one thing I think that King is doing so differently than Lovecraft is like he his heroes are always working class. Kings are not right. always, but often he often has this more working class. Even when he has these more intellectual characters, are like English teachers, right? Washed up English teachers, like in The Shining. Sometimes they come back. It's an English teacher, right? He's drawing so much from actually his early life. He actually worked at one of these laundromats. Did you know that? Oh, I did not. So, so is he really, maybe before we continue, let me just give a little, just, just mention who these characters are a little bit. Our, our main character in this story is a guy named John Huntoon, who's a, a police officer. I, I think he's specifically like a, a state trooper, but then he's friends with Mark Jackson, who's an English professor. And, uh, you know, we don't, I don't think we really ever quite learn what he works on, but he does say, yeah, I know some things about this type of industrial laundromat because I worked at one when I was in undergrad, but I, I hadn't realized that Stephen King himself had and that i guess mark jackson is kind of the the stephen king stand and he's the kind of mary sue character here yeah before he made it big so he did the english teaching which he uses again and again in his especially his early stories like and sometimes they come back you can the, the whole plot is this english teacher has to it's like high school english teacher right and he's got to teach the one class for the dummies right like the one class for the remedial english mm-hmm. it's called literature for life i remember uh and he hates this class but then like People would die, like his students would die and be replaced with people from his past who actually like killed his mother. And it ends up being like one after another, his students are replaced with this, these thugs who killed his brother. And then he has to like go to a grimoire, figure out how to exercise the demons or something. So it actually has a lot in common with the Bangler and that there's this, some kind of possession and there's gotta, you know, gotta dig into, do the research, find the book, find out how to kind of Lift the curse and, and, and that. So, uh, but this is all the, the point I'm trying to make is this is stuff that King was dealing with, right? Or he's got another story in this collection called, uh, Gray Matter, which is about, a kind of about, a, a like the experience of being hung over in a way. But it, <laughs> this boy has to buy this 24 tall boys for his, like, father every day because he's a drunk, right? And that's what King was drinking he, for a while. He was drinking, you know, in his early career, he was drinking, I think, 24 tall boys a day. Yeah, right. Stephen King, I think, you know, famously uh, an alcoholic. I mean, this is what The, the Shining is very much a, a, about this. And and uh, yeah, something he's wrestled with, something he's uh, written and spoken about extensively. But yeah, these are those years. But you really feel that working class uh, narrative in these early stories. And he never fully stops doing that. He's still very much attracted to these these everyday characters, which, you know, Lovecraft's heroes are, what, they're professors sometimes, you know, explorers. They're not, like, elite, but they're of a different type, right? Like the villains are working class often. Right. right. Yeah, if Lovecraft were actually going to write this story, Mark Jackson, the English professor, would be the protagonist of the story. He would have read about this uh, incident in the newspaper and would have figured it out and then rounded up some other professors or like a judge or something uh, and to help him go deal with this. And we would never actually meet the cop who was on the scene. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, ex- exactly. Just like the Dumbwich Horror. So I like that Stephen King is flipping that on its head and 
saying, yeah, you know, most most people aren't English professors. Most people aren't, you know, they most people don't run the uh, the uh, rare books room at the uh, you know Miskatonic University Library. Uh, but people are cops. People are you know state inspectors and and so on. And let's let's or just factory workers. And let's let's tell their stories. Yeah, that's one thing I liked about it. And I don't know. I keep coming back to to night shifts a lot. I, I think the stories. Some are really goofy. Like this one, I, I I laugh out loud still when I when I read this story. There's like that moment where I think it's Jackson something says something like you know it's hungry, yeah, you know, it's awake and it's hungry and it's really <laughs> so kind of hokey, right? But that's true of several of these stories. Like there's a story, the trucks in this this collection where these people are trapped in a gas station, all the cars came you know come alive and turned down the humans. Um, a story called Battlegrounds, where all these little toy soldiers or something are attacking this assassin. Um, the Lawnmower Man, where Pan is like, or Pan hires out people to mow people's you know, lawn and then, you know, kills them. Uh, what else do we have here? I mean, even Graveyard Shift. It's, it's, you know, kind of a silly story when you first read it. And then there's others like The Ledge or Quitters, uh, Inc. But when I'm thinking about these stories, you know, so many of these have been adapted too. Out of, I, I just was check checkmarking this. Graveyard Shift has a movie. The Mangler has three movies, right? Two, the Mangler and two sequels. Gray Matter's been adapted recently. Uh, sometimes they come back. It's been adapted in several sequels. Lawnmower Man, sort of. Children of the Corn, right? Been adapted. Maximum Overdrive is based on trucks. The Legend Quitters Inc. were in the Cat's Eye. A movie, which was an anthology movie that that he wrote. So about half the stories here have been, you know, adapted too, right? Maybe that's because King got like his movies were being adapted really early on in his career, right? Thematically, about half of these are horror stories, but there's also some science fiction stories. There's psychological thrillers. There's even a a, a psych a psychic story called "I Know What You Mean," which is about a college kid who has some kind of psychic ability and uses it to kind of seduce a woman, which uh, the kind of loser character who you know, was pining for some beautiful woman and something <laughs> he uses again and again and again in his stories, but here he's a psychic and he uses his abilities to basically seduce this pretty college girl. Uh, a lot of these themes come up again in his work, right? Even if his other collections seem more serious, uh, you know, but not always. There's a there's something in a later collection where the guy's just trying to lose weight on a on a bike. He's bike. He's he's on the stationary bike. I think it's called stationary bicycle. And he starts having fantasies of of workmen in his body burning away his lipids, and it sort of becomes real. Um, that must have been drawn from life too. I can imagine he gained some weight. And doctor said you got to get on the machine. You got to get on the bike machine. It's it's really an amazing collection. I think if. And that's maybe my favorite of his collections of short stories. If there were one story out of this collection that, say, Brandon and I were going to do on the, you know, sort of the main show, what what would you recommend besides The Mangler and uh, Graveyard Shift? I think One for the Road. It's connected. It's like a sequel to Salem's Lot. Right. That's a nice one. I I think The Woman in the Room, which is a, not supernatural at all. It's just about okay. a man who, who ODs his dying mother who's dying of cancer. So the mother, he's, he goes to the hospital and he sees his mother dying of cancer and he finally gives her the pills. 
Oh, so it's an assisted suicide story. Yeah. That's a really touching one. The last rung of the ladder is is one that it's probably the the one story here that's the most likely to make you like cry if you read it or listen to it. Um, that's about a a boy who saves his sister's life when they're playing in a barn because the ladder broke and he's able to save her life. But later on, he kind of loses contact with her. She goes off to the city and she ends up killing herself and he gets the note of her killing herself. And then he reflects on this experience how he saved her life as, as a kid. That's a really touching story. And I, I think maybe one of the more important for King's career is I Know What You Mean, which is, I this might be... Uh, I don't know when this that story was really published in respect to like The Shining, but it's his his first kind of character who shines. Yeah, that's uh, looking at the back of the book here. It says that one appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine, which that was surprising, I guess, uh, September nineteen seventy six. So that's that's prior to The Shining. So why did I pick the manga? I don't know. I think I I I knew it was sort of would you know it has this kind of. It, it's it's a horror story. It, it's sort of Lovecraft adjacent in a way, and you can see the Lovecraft influences on him. But it's also about working class people, and I think that's a great aspect of the story. This is no, but there's a real horror here, right? People get injured at workplaces all the time, right? Yeah, and there's a, there's something really quite sinister going on here with that as well. I mean, a number of things that jumped out to me in this story. Uh, one of them actually simply was the the functioning of of government. You know, it's local and state government here, but the way that it it it's meant to or it's presented as functioning really well, right? There's the you know the cop shows up, our main character uh, Hunton, John Hunton, and you know he immediately suspects that what's going on here is that the the owner of this law facility has been cutting corners by not following worker safety regulations because it's expensive to you know repair things or to you know get this piece of equipment and all of that sort of thing and there's a real sense in this story you know when the cop is talking to the the state inspector whose job it is to go to facilities like this and make sure they're following those regulations you know there's a hearing and everything and there's a real forceful expectation that if the business owners have been negligent here you know that they've not been following Following these regulations, they will be caught and they will go to jail. And that just seemed really quaint and naive to me. I just don't think I have that kind of optimistic confidence <laughs> that that's what would happen, you know, in our society today. Graveyard shift actually is it's it, it's more real in this sense because you have this these temp workers, right? They're like, oh, well, you guys are going to work through the this new was it the Fourth of July holiday or something? Yes, you're going to work through the holiday. And we're going to clean this place that hasn't been cleaned in 20 years. <laughs> and, and then when people are being injured, they're like, okay, you can stop coming to work. You can go to the doctor, but you'll be fired if, if you do that. Don't bother coming back. And, the, you know, the, like here the foreman is, is not, you know, horrible. It's, right. You know, great shift <laughs> is. But the same kind of indifference to the workers, you know, livelihood and, in that story as well, I mean, the, you know, something these stories have, something else, you know, another angle that these stories have in common, though, is is this idea that government is actually there to protect workers and, in fact, will do that. There's a sense in Graveyard Shift or an insinuation that's never, you know, backed up necessarily that the whole reason they're doing this cleaning thing is that they've not been doing it and that has been in violation of regulations and there's about to be some kind of inspection or something. But then also the, the main character of that story, you know, gets what he wants. 
robots, right? He's able to exert his will over the foreman by by threatening to go to the local government with information, you know, essentially to to rat them out about all of the violations that they've had. And that is something that the business fears. And yeah, I think in both of these cases, I just think I just... I just don't have that much faith that our government is actually cracking down on businesses like that anymore. It's uh, it's refreshing. King's a boomer, right? So right, exactly. So that New Deal generation, right? Or maybe there was, you know, not as cynical as most younger folks. Yeah, it's not just the idea that government does actually exist to protect us from people who want to harm us, but you know, not not just in the sense of like, you know, carjack us or invade our home or something like that, uh, but, you know, to protect us from being exploited or at least, you know, overly exploited, right? Uh, not just the government is supposed to do that, but the government actually does do that, that it's competent at doing that. And right, we have seen really, I mean, Stephen King is writing these stories at the moment that that, that is starting to not be be true that we're getting those these these changes in the way that people view government right that this you know 10 years from now we're you know 10 years from this story we're going to have a president or a presidential candidate say government is not the solution government is the problem and that does not seem to be king's viewpoint here i mean with always with king it's 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 not as easy to maybe nail down like like a thesis right that's why i think maybe not that many Maybe someday it'll happen, but so far, not that many people have written books about Stephen King. You know, like, yeah, he hates chaos. <laughs> you know, so the chaos agent's always a bad guy. He doesn't like political radicals, you know, on right. either side of the spectrum. You know, he's, yeah, he's got this optimism for, like, people in authority often, like, often his heroes are policemen, right? I just, I actually, I just uh, reread Black House. There, the local police are all like heroes. The the state police are they're more more cynical about the state police, but the local police are are good guys, right? And when he flips to the territories, he meets Parkus, who he, he was the character in the Talisman. This is a sequel to the Talisman, and he's like a, essentially a he's like a gunslinger type character, kind of a, the heroic force is stopping chaos. Right. So I think that's something that's that's there. Now, this doesn't come up much in this story, but it's it's one reason I've been thinking more about King in respect to my work recently on Lovecraft is Lovecraft is so much a believer in like for, like forgetting things. It's something that really strikes me. You know, I, I, I now that I've noticed, I I never can't see it. Is he really thinks the, the solution to things is trying to bury the past, bury it deep, right? So, case of Charles Dexter Ward is my favorite example of that. Right, the hero of that story, like abolishes all record that this stuff ever happened, right? And then uh, Dunwich Horror, same kind of idea, right? Let's forget this community, put down the evil, but then kind of we'll forget it ever happened, right? In the Colorado space, they literally are going to flood the whole town with a dam or some some kind of hydroelectric project. Right. <laughs> it's, it's all about kind of forgetting the past. And, and I think... I, you know, I don't know if this early on King is thinking these terms, but by the time he gets to it, it's all about memory. He's the exact opposite. He he stresses the importance of memory. So if I were to write something about King, it'd be something about King and memory. Um, there's a great line. I think it's in um, it might be in it or it might be in Pet Cemetery, but it's the same idea. It's like the, the old stand watch. This is the quote. I forget which novel it's in. I think it's in one of those two, but um. You know, in Pet Cemetery, it's that neighbor, right? He remembers everything. He knows everything, right? He knows where you can bury it. In fact, 
he seems to want to carry on the story, pass on this knowledge to the next generation, right? And it ends up being a disaster in that case. But, you know, this idea that that older generation knows something. Lovecraft is always like the working class knows something. And it's better you hide it. So, in the narrative of history, like that's why I think the case of Charles Dexter Ward, I don't want to get too much on Lovecraft here, but I guess that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, the root evils are things like slavery, right? Like, it's said initially in colonial America, Joseph Kerwin, you know, was a slave trader, right? You know, and abusing sailors and slaves for his experiments, right? And he, what does he want to do? What's Kerwin's main goal? It seems he has some nefarious earth-changing goal, but more mundanely, he wants to raise up these old wizards, right? To get their knowledge. He wants to remember. He wants to restore knowledge that's been lost. And the hero of the story is like, nope, we burn down the mansion, we, you know, we get rid of Kerwin, we, you know, we cover up what happened to Charles Dexter Ward. Right? But, um, Again, it, it's all about memory, right? The whole point of that is we got to remember. Got to remember. And then there, in the, when everything's falling apart in Derry at the end of that story, when there's the flood and everything, he, you know, there's old people watching. Right? There's, a, there's also that scene of the old people who remembered. It's such a striking difference between these two writers. Back to the mangler. Yeah, well, so it, it feels to me more like there's there's more of that Lovecraftian forgetting here in The Mangler than there is remembering that we have, you know, we have a character who's got some, you know, bizarre occult wisdom, I, you know, because I guess he works on, you know, he's an English professor, but I guess he works on witchcraft texts or something unclear what his research specialty is, right? He's, he knows these spell books and so on. It's, you know, I don't know, he's writing an article about it or something like that, but he has this this knowledge as well. And this does feel quite Lovecraftian in, in that sense of having access to this folk tradition. And although in this case, it's, you know, I think this story ends, you know, Lovecraft is, is known so much for, for being pessimistic, but most of his stories really do end with people saving the day, at least in the short term, right? But this story ends with the idea that, no, 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 this this crazy iron machine that's got a demon in it is is on the loose and, you know, that's it. Like, these, this, this folk knowledge does not save them in this case. I, I love the reason why they miss it, because it's a re- like the Belladonna thing, right? The Hand right. of Glory. I know, I looked up the Hand of Glory and in the book, in the, or in the, in the short story, he says the Hand of Glory can mean two things, right? It's that sinister hand left hand, right, of someone who's been dead, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like an old witchcraft thing. And if you look it up on Wikipedia, that's what you find. You don't find Belladonna. I couldn't find... When I searched Belladonna Hand of Glory, all I got was mentions of the Mangler, either the movie or the short story. So I don't know where he quite got that from, um, Belladonna being called the Hand of Glory. Maybe it's maybe it's true. But, um, you know, just like this loose interpretation of these facts, right? The, the witches... Nice cutting corners when they have to. But that's something that's, I think, really interesting about the way that this works. So there's, there's some, some some slipperiness here in these terms, right? You, you should use uh, this particular type of lichen, right? But Night Moss will do in a pinch because it's basically the same thing, right? It's it's It has similar characteristics in that it is a, you know, a thing that grows on another living thing and it, you know, blooms at night. And so, like, that, that will be fine. It will be close enough that there's this flexibility and slipperiness here with these terms, which is not just interesting, but seems actually really useful 
useful, right, for for witches and also really creative. In fact, King makes a, a point of that here of saying that like that's what witches are up to and, and wizards and sorcerers in our, you know, pre-modern text and our fantasy fiction, you know, is playing with these different combinations of things. It's like making a making a cocktail with like a different type of bitters or a different bourbon than you usually use or something like that. But here, right, there's a real big deal in the question of do we mean literally uh, a dead left hand or do we mean this plant that also sometimes is called this, though, you know, yeah, it seems like King actually made that up. But, you know, for this purpose of the story, we take that as given. And yeah, our our professor hero here says, well, there's no way that, you know, they used either of those things. It's not possible to get them. But then the cool thing that King does here is say, actually, that plant is used in a particular type of medication and that that has gotten, you know, got spilled into the machine unbeknownst to them. And so they show up to exercise uh, what they think of as being a low powered, low tier demon. And it turns out they've got you know, something much more serious uh, on their hands and they were not equipped to to do it. Though I don't know who they would have called to help them in that case if they had, you know, I guess they would have gone to Miskatonic and gotten somebody. I was also interested too in the the contrast here between the way that the demon gets in the machine versus the way that they're going to get the demon out. This this black magic does not have any verbal component to it. It's just you put the ingredients in there. I thought about this though, like maybe it should have had like accidentally said something to it, you know, casting the spell. <laughs> right. Because the, the antidote, like the Christian white magic is what it's called here, requires like reading chunks of Leviticus to it and saying some other prayers. But yeah, the black magic requires no type of invocation. But I think it would have been, you know, I, I thinking about it from King's perspective would have been a little bit hokey for uh, someone to have actually been, been saying some kind of <laughs> incantation over the machine. I think though, the way to do that, the solution to that would be, of course, to have it be lyrics in some song. Uh, maybe if this had been from the 80s when metal was a bigger thing, uh, we, we might have had that. No, the, the Christian white magic, right? he, that's the line, right? We, that is, yeah. Straight up Christian white magic. From pretty early on in his writing, King had this idea. It's not that he, I don't I even know, I don't think he's particularly Christian. He uses Christianity quite a lot in his work, though. I don't know about his religion or how faithful he is to any, anything, but. Uh, he uses Christi, Christian, Christian tropes a lot, but it's all part of the white, right? By the time you get to the Dark Tower novels, there's this idea of the white, right? Which is a, it's a force of order and goodness. And it can come from many different traditions, right? So there's like, uh, in Salem's Lot, right? Where, uh, what's his name? The priest, the pre, the, the, Father yeah, the priest. Callahan, he uses the cross, right? It's not that the cr- cross isn't as important as like, this belief in that it can be a conduit to his internal white magic. Right. He could have used any religious symbol so long as, you know, he believed in it. So long, that would have been the, the conduit to the power. At least that was my understanding of the sort of urban, urban fantasy-ness of, of how those rules worked there. So, I, again, this story maybe is thinking purely, you know, Christianity against, you know, and then in the stand, you have the same kind of idea, right? There's some power in Christianity. Right. I mean, God really exists in that story. Yeah, I mean, King has this real element of, of I guess, really, I will say, urban fantasy to him in ways that maybe Lovecraft does not in thinking about uh, religious traditions, real religious traditions, you know, actually having power. And, you know, there he's just he's drawing on these tropes of other types of horror literature that, that I think, you know, Lovecraft 
strays away from or, you know, even just kind of, uh, you know, tries to skirt in, intentionally. But I think, you know, Lovecraft's fairly hostile to religion, and that's probably putting it mildly, actually. Yeah, I just I just looked at a letter. This is actually a good letter for Voluminous to cover if I haven't covered it yet, because it doesn't really fit my format where I try to look at a bunch of letters mm-hmm. uh, in a period of time. Um, but it's like a 50-page letter to Frank Belknap Long. And he's talking about, because I think Lovecraft's a bit divided on this because he believes so strongly that if the universe is indifferent to us, if we're like a drift in this, you know, uh, how he says it being the Call of Cthulhu, right? Like we're adrift in this cosmic nothingness and we, we have no foundation and science is kind of opening these doors to just making us realize how alone we are in the universe, how separated we are. And in, you know, in the stories, you know, it goes one way, but as letters, he says a lot, like, well, what we need is tradition, right? That's why we need the, like, and that's why he's a, likes the 18th century so much, as he thinks this is the foundation <laughs> of like the Anglo American empire. And we need to kind of stick up for that, right? So religion is part of that, like religion. And in this sense, maybe this idea of religion being a part of the, of the white in, in Lovecraft's letters, he might almost agree with that. It doesn't show up in his stories, though. I, I can't think of any stories where Christianity is used. It does say, like, you know, in this letter to Long, he's pretty hostile to Catholics. He says, like, Protestantism, it, it at least provides, it's that boat that we can, you know, if nothing else, we'll still be adrift in this cosmic ocean, but at least we have a boat, right? As opposed to being alone, you know, in the sea. Yeah, as I was say, it's been a while since I've read uh, The Haunter in the Dark, which is Lovecraft's last published story. So you, you will get to it sooner than than we will. But that's the only story that I, I can think of that might have some of that. And given that it's, you know, it's late, it's right before his death, you know, that might be interesting to think about where his stories would have gone. But I will uh, I'll look forward to hearing you address that when you get to that on the show. Yeah, and which is somehow oh, yeah. are adjacent to Christianity. But yeah, his attitude towards witches is really fascinating. Lovecraft's. Right. Well, his and of course he he picks up on the the Margaret Murray uh, idea, this notion that you know witchcraft is really this this prehistoric uh, religion that, that that some rustic people are still practicing, you know, millennia uh, over millennia, uh, and that it's really here in early modernity that that finally the Christian Church is you know cracking down on that uh, and putting an end to that, and so. Uh, you know, I think this is part of of Lovecraft's. I think maybe not hostility to, but maybe skepticism of religion. Right, that he just thinks all of it is kind of uh, all of it is kind of a, a, a con in some sense. So, as a historian, what, what do you think of that Murray argument? Because part of me likes it. I I, I love this book, Brian by, by Brian Palmer called Cultures of Darkness. I mention it all the time mm-hmm. in my podcast, actually, where he sort of gets at. He kind of agrees with Murray a little bit that you know, if you take peasant people peasant cultures, that they're under intense stress, right? Taxes, rents, bad harvests, the weather, armies marching through, right? That you sort of hedge your bets a little bit, right? That, yeah, you are a Christian, you go to mass, but you also have the horseshoe and, you know, you believe in magic because it's, you know, there's not much you can do physically to improve your chances of survival, but you know, there's hope maybe in these different traditions and that there's a, a conduit for survival of these things. And I kind of accepting the kind of the mainstream argument that this was all like the Protestants or the, the new modern state or misogyny. 
I agree with all that too, but I kind of want to think the witches are real. Yeah, well, I definitely don't believe Murray's thesis that it's a you know a prehistoric religion that has uh, continued on for millennia uh, unchanged and with with people being aware that they're in a tradition. And I don't know that there's anyone who you know buys into that argument who takes that seriously now. It's actually been a. I, I have you actually read Murray? I read Murray when I was a like a, a teenager. Yeah, I, I, I kind of read, skimmed through it. I didn't mean to read time. it one of these days more more carefully. Yeah, I would like to do that too. To find that way that, you know, it's actually a conscious tradition. No, I don't think so. But, you know, working people, lower class people being heterodox in their beliefs, that you see everywhere actually. You see plenty of people who say they're a Christian still believe in psychics or worship, you know, good crystals or whatever. Right. I mean, I mean, I think someone might even, and, and by someone, I mean, Murray, you know, would actually like point to all sorts of things in Christianity that are pre-Christian, uh, you know, Christmas trees being, you know, like a great example of that, right? The real obvious example of that. Uh, and even just like the, uh, really all the things that we do around Christmas, even if they're, they're wrapped up in a celebration of the birth of Christ in some way, uh, though many, so many of those customs are themselves pre-Christian that simply got wrapped into the religion. And that that's something that, you know, some Murray would point to to say, like, this is a totally possible thing. And, you know, this was a huge thing, right, at this this time in sort of the late 19th and early 20th century. And my public library in, you know, my suburb of Chicago growing up in the 80s and 90s had this amazing anthropology collection. So we read Murray, we read uh, Fraser, the, the, the Golden Bough, we had access to Robert Graves, the, the White Goddess. There were a few others like this, too. All the Eric von Daniken that you could ever possibly want. So like super into ancient aliens for, you know, a long time, uh, too long, more, more than a person should be into ancient aliens, I will say. But I would love to revisit all of these things or some of these things, you know, now that I've had some professional training in how to do history and how to be a historian and like no languages, you know, no ancient and medieval texts and so on. I would love to revisit these things. I don't know if someone else is doing a podcast like that, but uh, it would be fun to do. Well, Evan, before we close out this episode, uh, let me ask you about your plans You know, for when you finish Lovecraft, because I think you've even said this on the air, and forgive me if this is something you said in one of our private communications, but I think that you have indicated that you're interested in actually doing some kind of project with Stephen King. Is, is that something you're, you're thinking about? Originally, I wanted to do like video essays or something, but video essays are really hard to do. <laughs> I'm putting it up on YouTube. I, can't, I just don't have the patience to do that kind of stuff. Uh, I did do one on Carrie and, and witches and, and, and kind of the whole debate about women's bodily autonomy in the 70s, right? I put it up on YouTube and I got like 50 hits or something <laughs> in a couple of years. I was like, oh, this is really depressing because I really thought I was like onto something interesting with that. But I have ideas of different like themes that are like Lovecraft adjacent, you know, and to like kind of look at what King would say about these things or what King's work kind of how builds on these traditions. So I might do that just when I'm done with the Lovecraft read through, go back, revisit King. I'm not going to do anything like a love, uh, King read through. I don't know. I think once I'm done with the Lovecraft for a while, I'm going to stick to the main mind series. Once I get back to Taiwan the summer, you know, go through Library of America again, maybe do Twain. I've been thinking about right. working on him. Uh, I want to do John Adams. And like maybe John Adams, Quincy Adams, the whole Adams family, and then maybe even Henry Adams. Do some of that. 
I don't know. Um, Malamud. I always, every time it's baseball season, I want to do a series on Malamud. <laughs> I never get around to doing it. So, but anyway, I want to go back to the Library of America and focus on that for a while. Um, I don't know which, if I'm going to do another kind of read through of the author's complete work, who it would be at this point. Yeah, well, I, I, if you're anything like me, Evan, you'll you will you'll take a few months of just only going back to you know reading one volume of the Library of America like every ten days or so, and then you'll you're going to get that itch to come back and do to have a second series going on. So we uh, well we can see what that is. Maybe me and uh, and listeners can uh, can have some kind of betting pool or make a drinking game out of it to, to see who it will be. But. Uh, well, uh, I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. So, Evan, let me say thank you so much for guest hosting with me today. Also, for just having me read this uh, this fun story, this really iconic story about a possessed washing machine. Uh, let me just also encourage listeners before we go to come talk with us about this story. You can drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com. You can stop by our subreddit. Uh, also, please be sure to check out Evan's books and podcasts. All three of his shows, all 500 episodes, and then also maybe whatever he's going to do next are available on the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time feed. Uh, but Evan, where else can people find you on the internet to, to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, Twitter, uh, Evan Lampy one I, I got a small YouTube channel, but I haven't updated it in a long time. But I have some good stuff there. Some book reviews. Um, I actually have a one or two theory videos about Stephen King. Well, uh, Brandon and I will be back here on uh, Tuesday, March 2nd with a bonus commissioned episode on the film The Lighthouse. And then after that, we're going to have our regularly scheduled episode on The Rose Garden by M.R. James. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>